Our scripture reading today is found in Luke chapter 22. As we continue to march our way uh, toward the cross and the tomb and the empty tomb. And uh, for a while I was concerned that uh, it wouldn't line up well for Easter that, that we would somehow, like it, we, I would preach on the resurrection of Jesus and we would still be two weeks ahead of Easter. And so I started slowing things down and even asked Rich last week not to preach from Luke. And now we will be sprinting to the end <laughs> to make sure that we get to Easter on Easter. So I may have miscalculated that a little bit, but... It would be strange to still be at the foot of the cross on Easter Sunday, so we will do everything we can for that not to happen to you. But, uh, but I don't want to fly too quickly through these passages, and yet, uh, in, in one sense, they'll, they kind of repeat the explanation of what Christ is doing and where He is heading. We... Uh, it's, it's interesting to realize where we are, like in all of the gospel writings, this is how you can tell they weren't trying to write a biography. Uh, we've been in Luke for a month now since last communion, and other than Rich's sermon last week from Romans 7, we haven't even left that night. It's still the same night as last month when we looked at Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. We are still in that night here in the end of Luke. And uh, every gospel writer does this. Like they, they fly through. I mean, Luke says, oh, also when he was 12. We go from infancy to 12 years old. And we just fly through. And then suddenly from 12 to 30. And they take giant steps forward. And then at the end, things come to a screeching Halt. They just slow, and the details come pouring in, and here we are, and it is still the very night that Jesus instituted His Lord's Supper, and He is now walking with His disciples. They are leaving the upper room, leaving the house where they had prepared the, the Passover feast, and they are walking, uh, as was their custom, especially throughout this week, to spend the night in an outdoor garden on the Mount of Olives. And so would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, 
he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those were who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, Shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So this is definitely one of those passages that can really sort of cause you to scratch your head. Uh, After all, uh, the central claim of Christianity is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the second person in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God incarnate. Uh, Does God then have a schizophrenic will? Uh, Does God argue internally with Himself as you and I might argue internally with ourselves over competing or conflicting desires? Uh, What do we do with this very intense and, and let's face it, very uh, human view of Jesus, and not just human, but a pretty weak human. How does this, how does this answer our questions about Christianity or about who Jesus is or why He came or even the claims that He's the Son of God? It's interesting that Luke gives the shortest account of the garden uh, scene. You know, Mark and Matthew both let us know that there are at least three times that Jesus prays what we see Him praying, that He goes a couple of times and sees His disciples sleeping. But Luke condenses it all. He draws it all together. He, he summarizes it. He summarizes what Jesus' prayer was about. He summarizes the whole scene. And he does it in a way so that our attention isn't on the disciples, but so that really all of our attention is on Jesus. Uh, the way he lays it out, the way Luke lays it out is very interesting. Uh, it's what... You don't need to know this, it won't be on the quiz, but it's what like scholars call a chiasm. 
uh, which is just the shape of the X. And so, like, where they'll start with a statement and end with a similar statement or get you back to that place, and they work their way into a main point and then out. So, like, A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And then you see sort of this thing in the center, and you see that in the seven verses uh, other than verse 39. So, beginning in verse 40, you see Jesus tells His disciples, pray that you might not enter into temptation, and He ends that passage with pray that you might not enter into temptation. So, that's a clue that there's something uh, bracketed by those two statements. So, He says, first He tells His disciples, pray, then Jesus separates Himself from His disciples and kneels, and then Jesus prays. An angel is sent to comfort him, and then Jesus prays, this time in agony. He rises and goes to his disciples, and then he says to them again, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And so, when you look at that layout, interestingly, Luke is drawing our attention to the very central point that God sent an angel to strengthen Jesus. Like, that's the center. It's surrounded by Jesus' praying, but in the center of it is, and so an angel was sent to strengthen him. And so it's interesting to see that Luke emphasizes the prayer of Jesus more than he does the failure of the apostles. But Jesus does approach the apostles. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then even at the end, when they seem to have failed, he reminds them again, pray that you may not enter into temptation. I do not do that often enough. I don't know about you, but when there is a sense of temptation... It is not often enough that my first thought is, I need to pray. I need to pray. I cannot face this alone. I cannot handle this alone. I will not face this temptation in my own strength. I must pray. Jesus is reminding His disciples. He's already told them at supper, listen, Satan has requested, demanded to be allowed to sift you all like wheat. And he has told them, he says to Peter, I've, I've prayed for you, Peter, so that when you return, in other words, you're going to give in, but when you return, I've prayed so that your faith may not fail. Your giving in to temptation isn't necessarily a sign that you are no longer a child of God. I've prayed that your faith will not fail so that when you return, you may strengthen your brothers. And here is Jesus, not just calling them to pray in the moment of temptation, but then modeling what that looks like. Jesus is now going to face temptation, and His first thought is to pray. Jesus is entering into the garden. He, removes, he separates Himself from 
the disciples and he falls to his knees and begins to pray. The standard posture at that time, especially for men in prayer, was to stand with your head raised and your eyes open and sometimes your hands even raised to pray to God. But Jesus is desperate. He is under the weight of the temptation. He has fallen to his knees and praying. He is visibly crushed by the temptation he is facing. And he says this simple prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Father, Jesus Jesus knows the one to whom he prays. He is not just some cosmic force that's in the trees and the rocks like Obi-Wan Kenobi would have you believe. Like He is a personal, compassionate, caring God. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, there's submission in his request. He's not demanding. He's saying, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What is the cup that Jesus is referring to? The cup that he's referring to that his prayer indicates it is the will of God that he drink. This cup is what the Old Testament refers to as the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath that every sin deserves and every sinner deserves to drink. And not just sip at, to drink and drain to its dregs. Isaiah 51, 17 says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you have, you have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. And throughout many other prophets in Jeremiah 25 and Lamentations 4 and in Ezekiel 23 and other places, the cup of God's wrath, the cup that Jesus is asking for it to be passed from him is the cup of God's wrath for sin. Isaiah 53, that that famous passage that has to do with the suffering servant and exactly what he will suffer. In verse 10, it says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, the Lord will see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, be, make many to be accounted righteous and he will bear their iniquities. Jesus is feeling the reality of the weight of the reason he came to earth. The reason the Son of God put on flesh, the reason the Son of God became human, was not just to give us some 
inspirational TED Talks on how to love each other better and how to be a better neighbor to one another. He came to drink the cup of God's wrath for sinners in their place. This is what Jesus is asking. If you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is asking for this cup to be taken, asking that he not have to bear not just the sins of the world, but the wrath of his Father over the sins of the world. And yet he finishes his prayer, yet not my will, but your will be done. And we're told that when he finished praying, the Father answers his prayer. And he says, no, I am not willing. I am not willing. But he sends him an angel to strengthen him. He doesn't send him an angel to to make it all seem better. He sends him an angel to give him strength to face what God is calling him to face, the bearing of our sin and the receiving of God's wrath for our sin. And when Jesus is strengthened by the angel, he gets up and he brushes himself off and he juts out his chin and his hair and his blue sash that he wears in every picture. They're flapping behind him in in majestic victory. And he says, now I am strengthened to do God's will. Bring it. Oh, no, wait, he doesn't do that. God sends an angel to strengthen Jesus. And he prays all the more earnestly in agony. The strength God gives Jesus isn't to pretend it's not going to be bad. He gives him strength to face the hell he is about to face. It doesn't change that it is still hell. It doesn't change that it is still awful. His prayer is now even more earnest and more agonized because now his prayer is, then don't let me fail. If this is your will, then I'm going to need a lot of help tonight. We're told his, his sweat becomes like drops of blood. It could be a simile, just a descriptive language. Large drops of sweat fell like like dripping blood from an open wound. It is also possible that it's a literal description. There's a medical condition called, uh, I'll probably say this wrong, hematidrosis, hematidrosis, 
Uh, it's a condition where the capillaries that, that feed your sweat glands, they burst so that actually blood mingled with sweat flows out of your sweat glands. And according to medical descriptions, the condition occurs under extreme physical or emotional stress. And when there is acute fear or an intense mental contemplation, there have been cases of, of men who are about to be executed who experienced this condition because of the, the mental or emotional stress they were under. There were cases in during the London Blitz, as London was being bombed during World War II, of cases of this showing up and people just overwhelmed with the stress of the situation. There were cases of sailors uh, in a storm this occurring to. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that happens medically when you are under just tremendous stress and agony. This passage has on display the full humanity of Jesus. Jesus is absolutely human in what he is about to face, and it frightens and overwhelms him almost to death. In fact, one of the other gospel writers says, Jesus said to his disciples before he removed himself from them, he says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Please stay and pray with me. But we also see in this reaction the perfect righteousness of Jesus. What, what other reaction is appropriate for one who has never sinned, who has never even sipped at the cup of God's wrath over sin because he's never deserved anything but acceptance and love and reward. And yet, here he is about to receive God's wrath for all of sin. There isn't a more righteous response to that than to be revulsed by it, to be overwhelmed by it. Also, just as an aside and an encouragement, possibly, uh, agony over facing things that are God's will is not sin. Being overwhelmed with agony over facing something that God Himself has decided this is what you will face is not sin. Jesus faced this temptation with agony feeling overwhelmed, to even to the point of death, is not sin. Coming to God and crying to God, if it is your will, please change this. But then being able to say, and if it's not your will, then please strengthen me, because it's not in me to face this. 
It is interesting that this passage of Jesus uh, sweat becoming like drops of blood. Do you know this is the only place that Jesus' blood is mentioned all the way to Calvary and into the tomb? Like we know that he shed blood. We know that happened just from the descriptions of what he faced. Like it would be physically impossible for him not to. But this is the only place his blood is actually mentioned by name. One writer says that Jesus' struggle on the Mount of Olives is presented by Luke as the watershed in the Passion narrative. The critical point at which faithfulness to the divine will is embraced definitively and in the strenuousness of prayer. While Jesus' body is crucified on Calvary, it is in the garden that Jesus' soul accepts the wrath of God. It's interesting that Luke is even kind to the disciples, isn't he? Like Jesus comes back and says that they were, they were sleeping for sorrow. They were just, they couldn't bear it. There was just too much. There was too much that night. They were sleeping for sorrow. Some of you have experienced this, that your soul is so overwhelmed with sorrow that you can't do anything but sleep. And even then, it comes fitfully. Jesus, at least Luke doesn't, doesn't have Jesus chastising them, but simply repeating the warning. Pray. Pray so that you might not into, enter into temptation. In the next passage, we see the will of Jesus and the will of men. It unfolds sort of in three sections. The Jesus' exchange with Judas, and then Jesus' exchange with his disciples, and then Jesus' confrontation of the mob. And what we see in this is not the will of men overwhelming and taking the upper hand, but really we see the will of Jesus. Because really in this whole passage, there's only one person who seems to have any control over himself, and that's Jesus. He maintains full control. We're told that a mob comes and Judas is leading the way. Judas, one of the twelve. And I pointed this out earlier in chapter 22, but it's the only place other than the list of disciples that Judas is even named by Luke. So he gives a list of who the twelve were, but then now he begins to speak specifically of Judas three times, and each time with a more intimate and more intimate description. So first, 
in verse 3, he says, Judas, who was of the number of the twelve, went and conferred how he might betray Jesus. So here's one of the very twelve, one of the closest, most intimate friends of Jesus, and he's going to look for a way that he might betray him. Then in verse 21, we're told that Jesus himself says, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table with me. So we go from just a one of the twelve, and now his hand is together with Jesus' hand on the table. There's a much more intimate setting than just being one of the twelve friends. And now Jesus says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? An intimate, personal greeting, a greeting of respect and of love and appreciation is used to mark Jesus as the one as the one that they should arrest. We also see the will of the disciples. Some of them uh, think, well, now's the time to take matters into our own hands. And I know this doesn't apply to any of us, but isn't it interesting that so many times disciples think, well, now it's time to take matters into our own hands. Jesus is going to need some help to get this done. They've been told they're all going to fall away. Peter's been told he's going to deny he even knows who Jesus is three times this very night. This is our chance. This is where we prove Jesus was wrong. We are committed. We're in it. We are in it to win it. Get the swords. Is now the time? You said get swords. Is now the time? They don't even wait for an answer. Peter, we're told in other passages, it's Peter. It's not just some random disciple. Peter, it's like, I will prove to you, Jesus, how much I love you. I will die. I will go down swinging. This is how we know Peter, an excellent fisherman, was a lousy soldier. He was not aiming for his ear. He's just bad at it. Lops the guy's ear right off. And Jesus says, stop this. Enough of this. And he heals. He heals the man. Like, that should sink in every time we read it, but this time it was much... It just, it's overwhelming. This man is here to arrest and seek the death of Jesus, and Jesus heals him. Jesus had told his disciples, listen, pray for those who curse you. Do good to those who who want to do harm to you. And here he is modeling what that looks like, even as his death is imminent. He cares for this man. It's not Judas's will that is driving this. It's not the disciples' will that is driving this. It's not the mob's will that is driving this. Jesus. It is the will of Jesus himself. Which brings us to the last point, the will of Satan and the will of God. Is it Satan's will that Jesus be killed, or is it God's will that Jesus be killed? 
Yes. It is. Here is this very strange place in human history where the will of God and the will of Satan converge. And it is the will of God that will emerge victorious. Even when it looks like the powers of darkness. Here we are. It is, this is your hour. This is the power of darkness. And yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him. It is by his wounds that we will be healed. Because one side simply wants to kill God's son. And the other side is willing to sacrifice his son for the salvation of many. Death is involved in both, but there is a huge difference between murder and sacrifice. I love the song that we sing on Good Friday. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And in that song, we're called to think through. Tell me, you who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear, his cause disowning foes, insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save, yet the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Jesus, who for eternity has lived in perfect union and communion with God the Father, has already humbled himself by taking on flesh, has already humbled himself by becoming human, not just any human, but an impoverished and poor human. A human with no home address. A human who needed to raise support just to eat. Who didn't have a place to lay his head at night. Who re relied on the, the hospitality of his own creation for his very survival. And then humbled himself even beyond that. To take the cup of God's wrath that you and I deserve. In our place. Because it was the Lord's will to crush him. So that by his righteousness, many would be counted as righteous. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Indeed, thank you. Though in agony and distress, you willingly took my cup of wrath 
for yourself. You took the cup of wrath, God's wrath, that each and every one of us deserves to drink, and you drained it. There is no more wrath of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you. You are never again angry with us, for your wrath has been satisfied in Christ. This is what we celebrate at the table. This is what we receive. We drink the cup of God's blessing because Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.